Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Welcome to Protect and Serve, the podcast that delves into the incredible lives of police officers across the United Kingdom and around the world. I'm your host, Oliver Lawrence, and together we will embark on a journey to explore the untold stories of those who dedicated their lives to protecting and serving their communities. You may be sitting there wondering why I chose to start this podcast. Well, let me share with you a little bit about myself. I served as a uniformed officer for over a decade. During my time, I witnessed firsthand the immense sacrifices that officers make daily. From confronting dangerous situations to offering a helping hand, their dedication is unwavering. These experiences left a profound impact on me, even after I hung up my uniform. I created the podcast to shed light on the extraordinary work of police officers, not just in the United Kingdom, but across the globe. Each episode will feature riveting interviews with these brave men and women, offering you a glimpse into the challenges they faced, the triumphs they celebrated, and the personal journeys that brought them to this noble profession. But it's not just about the heroic moments, it's about the individuals behind the uniforms. We'll explore their passions, their motivations, and their unwavering commitment to protecting and serving their communities. This podcast isn't about promoting any particular agenda or glossing over the often complex nature of policing. Instead, it's a platform to celebrate the diverse perspectives and experiences that exist within the law enforcement community. We will address the tough questions, engage in honest and courageous conversations, seeking to understand the myriad of roles and responsibilities that come with being a police officer. Whether you're a fellow officer, someone aspiring to join the police, or a curious listener seeking to gain insight into the lives of those who wear the uniform, Protect and Serve has something for everyone. So join me as we embark on this eye-opening journey, sharing stories that will inspire, enlighten, bring a tear to the eye, and create a better understanding of the dedication and sacrifices police officers make to keep us safe. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Together, we'll explore the heart and soul of those who proudly protect and serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve with me, your host, Oliver Lawrence, Series 3. We're about Episode 6 or 7 now. I seem to to lose count, but um, once again, you know, really powerful series and really enjoying uh, recording these interviews. And and throughout the Protect and Serve podcast, I've, I've spent the last two series 
interviewing colleagues from policing. And I think probably what is a really fascinating insight for all of us is to understand people that have been at the other side of, of law enforcement, have had interactions with police, have fallen into probably a, a world of, of criminality, but come out the other side and looking to really champion sort of people's rehabilitation back into communities and what that looks like. Now, to give you some context around my next guest, who I'll introduce very shortly, obviously I've become, I say, relatively big. I'm doing quite a bit of stuff on Twitter. This weekend has certainly proved a significant challenge with a tweet that I found uh, quite offensive and decided to stand up against men's mental health but equally we can talk about that during this episode but i've been watching very closely um a twitter page um championed by a gentleman called securius mcgrath who is, i'm absolutely honored for him to be on the show uh, this evening securius welcome to the podcast first of all how are you not bad i'm okay thank you so like you, like I said at the beginning, this is a podcast which is very much sort of focused on sort of policing and law enforcement. But and, and as I say with all my podcasts, I like to wind back the clock like every good detective and start at the beginning of somebody's story. So for the purposes of the audience and the context, tell us about the sort of early part of your life where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in North Liverpool um, and I'd say from about the age of 14, 15, um, I got involved in petty small small scale offending like uh, driving motorbikes with no insurance and so on i think the first time i went to a police station was age 14 uh, when i was caught on a motorcycle with no license so i was taken to the police station and the parents come and collected me and it started from there then i moved on to cars no insurance got disqualified um then driving while disqualified um and i think that was my first custodial sentence for driving a vehicle while disqualified i was given four months when i was 16 i think um and then from that i got involved in stolen vehicles and then i was sentenced to 15 months for ramming a police car in liverpool um i was being chased by the police and um i couldn't lose them so i turned around and uh, we've ended up ramming into each other i don't know who rammed do they said i rammed them that may be the case i can't really remember it all happened too fast in the moment Um then from that um it escalated into firearms and gangs and a more organised or I'd say more violent type of offending, and then it just went went on from there. So if we it sort of sort of winding back the clock, what was your what was your schooling like? Did you have a successful sort of junior and high school upbringing? What sort of what was your family environment like? Yeah, um, well, I, I come from a criminal. I wouldn't say a criminal family, but there were certain family members who were involved in crime, who were involved in consumption of drink and drugs and so on. Um, and I left school when I was 13. Uh, so 13, and I left school and I started going hunting with ferrets and dogs. I, I was I was a bit of a loner. I was a bit of a I was a bit different from everyone else. Everyone else was on the parks drinking and um, taking whatever they were taking, doing whatever they were doing. Whereas I didn't like drugs. I didn't like drink because I seen the impact it can have. Um, so I was I was strongly against drinking drugs. So I chose to go down another route. Bit of an unusual one. I had about twenty-five ferrets uh, in, in my parents' uh, backyard, and I had hunting dogs. And I used to go about on my own with my ferrets and my dogs. Um, it went really till I got involved in gangs that I started mixing with people uh, more, more often, more commonly. But before that, I tended to be a bit of a loner. 
did you have any sort of early experiences or observations of the police in terms of sort of a negative outlook as to kind of because you know as we grow up as children we kind of see the police as these people that may come to our aid yeah. sort of an emergency service how did you view the police as a, from a well, very young age from the youngest age where i had the negative obviously i was locked up by police and but i didn't hold no grudge because of that because i knew i was doing wrong so i took it on the chin they were polite with me they were professional the first negative experience i had was with the I don't know if you'd recall them from the build the OSD. I think it's stuff for Operational Support Division. Um, I might be wrong. They were called the OSD some time ago. I must have been about 16 years of age. Um, they stopped me on Oakfield Road, I think it was, in Anfield, and they planted cannabis on me. And that was the first negative. That's always stuck in my mind from, you know, I, I'm in my early 40s now. So that's from a 16 years of age, 15, 16, maybe. I've had that stuck in my mind. Because I was convicted that and I generally never done it. I didn't smoke cannabis. I didn't take drugs. Um, so that, it still stands out to me. That was Don't get me wrong. I went on to offend and got away with many offences. So I think it balances it out a bit. But it still frustrates me that I was actually convicted of something that I generally never done. And that police officer knows that deep down. He planted cannabis on me and, and I never got jailed for it. I only got a fine, but it was still a principle that I had that on my record, what I generally never done. So that was the first negative experience I, I ever had with the police. What did what did, what were the what were the streets like as a youngster growing up? Were they a violent place? You know, we we talk a lot at the moment about sort of uh, an, an ever growing epidemic of knife crime across the UK, but predominantly we see a lot in London. What were the streets like for you growing up? No, they they, they were relatively safe. I, I'd say they were very very safe. Um, I actually at that age I used to carry knives for the purpose of hunting. Uh, big. I wouldn't say zombie knives, but they were big, ugly knives. So I used to carry them not for the purpose of, you know, wanting to commit violence or wanting to hurt anyone. It was for hunting and skinning rabbits and so on, so on. Um, but yeah, back then the streets were very safe. You could let your children out, and you know they, they, they could go to the park and they come back in one piece. And and you was, you know, parents didn't used to worry back then. I'd say in Liverpool specifically, it was about from the early two thousands when things started going taking a turn. There's a significant turn. Younger generations then started to, be, to become attached to firearms and gangs. That was early 2000s. And then I think in Liverpool, it just escalated on from there. It was contagious. It, it spread and spread. The gang culture and the culture to carry weapons and, and so on. And the participants, the, 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 the gang members got younger and younger. And what about your friendship groups? Did you have like you said you're a bit of a lonely, just you, you, your ferrets and and your dogs, and you'd go out by yourself? But did you have a friendship group that kind of saw you as somebody who might be vulnerable, who they could bring into their group, who could potentially potentially support them with potential activities? No, because because back then, even though there was criminals and there's people who done crime, it weren't really there weren't really that much. From what I remember, there weren't that much grooming of young people in for, for criminal exploitation. There weren't. I didn't really see it then. Um, the first time I saw it was around the, early, as I say, around the early two thousands, when people were being recruit, groomed and recruited and sent to Scotland with drugs to sell drugs or Cumbria and so on. So, uh, when I was growing up, growing up as a child, there weren't like gang members at schools trying to recruit kids into gangs. I didn't see any of that whatsoever. It was a relatively safe place. Um, your school was relatively safe, and 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 your community was relatively safe. Everyone knew each other, knew each other, and if if you stepped out of line, then your neighbour would take you home to your parents, and then your parents would give you the belt, and you'd be grounded for you know, and 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 that's how it went. Your parents didn't want people knocking at the door, complaining about their children. So 
and there was sometimes when we used to wake taxis and bus drivers. Um, I had the habit of throwing eggs at bus drivers and stuff. And you, if you got caught, you get a smack around, a smack around the head. You, you get a belt, and then some of some of them. I was taken home once or twice by taxi drivers because we used to wake taxis. So that that was how it was back in the day. You get a belt off the taxi driver, you go home, and you get a belt off your parents. And I'm not trying to condone violence of any nature, but I think it was a lot more effective. The person I was scared of back then was one of my grandparents, and and you know I never used to swear in front of them. I never used to step out of line in front of them because they didn't. They had strict boundaries, and they didn't let me step out of line. And I remember once they pulled a poker out of fire and went to chase me with it, and that always stuck in my mind. But if we wow. done that now in this. If we done that now in this day and age, it'd be, you know, did have social services that are even down the neck, but it was effective because that was the only person I behaved for. I didn't step out of line when I was in their presence. I didn't swear. I respected them. And it, I wouldn't say it's even fear. I'd just say it was a mutual respect because I knew they wouldn't tolerate any any nonsense from me. And I think that's what we lack now. Parental autonomy, parental autonomy has been eroded and parents no longer have the power. And we see these professionals as, even on Twitter and a lot of ex-police officers seem to be um, batting for the other side, batting for the criminal side. Uh, they, they've left because I've took a great interest in policing in the last three years because of the increase in violent crime. And I look at the character of some police officers where and when I can and different police forces now they operate. And some police officers seem as though they're batting for the other side, they're defending criminals as opposed to defending victims. But they seem to be ex-police officers who've left the job and gone turned into these liberal do-gooders is the, probably the best way to describe them. Did you have, what would you, what were your dreams and aspirations as a young man growing up? But did you have, so like, did you have a dream of playing football for the, for England? What, or what, were, what were those sort of excitements for you growing up? My excitements were growing up with my ferrets and driving cars and driving motorbikes. I think that the first car I drove was 11 years of age on the beach. So I didn't look to a career because I didn't understand it. I never had no, positive role models I, I didn't understand education um i didn't know i didn't understand about the need for a job and financial stability and stuff like that i didn't know nothing about that i left school when i was 13 so i just thought life was just you just plod on with life and the money falls at your feet i, I didn't have no understanding or no you know and, and then when i realized that went the reality that's when the only thing i could do was start committing petty crime like stealing cars to self on order like people adore the cars and i'd steal them and sell them and so on you know so that was my only way to earn money i'm not saying it was right but that was the only thing i knew whereas had i had a positive role model and someone to speak to me and educate me on what needed to be done in life and give me the path to go down then there's a realistic chance that i would have went down the right path and i would never have ended up in prison can, can you talk us through when sort of your sort of minor traffic offending is sort of driving motorbikes and cars without insurance and licensing you know that there's there's still serious road traffic uh, road traffic offenses i don't want to um minimize them but in terms of when your offending started to increase in terms of then stealing cars what that felt like was there an adrenaline buzz what were what were the emotions that you're going through knowing that your 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 behavior was escalating were you aware and conscious of that well when i started stealing cars it, it went to joyride um, it was strictly for financial gain. Um, people used to call me the Mondeo man back in 95, 1995, 1996, because I had a habit of stealing Mondeos because that's what people used to buy of me. Um, and the adrenaline was when I get away from the scene in the car. We used to steal them with the keys. We didn't use the damage ignition, but we, we steal them with the keys. Um, 
and the adrenaline was when I get away from the scene, and then I'd know that I was I was safe. Would change the plates and then would sell them on, and that's how we used to make make a living. Um, I was eventually caught selling them to police police officers. There was some type of operation that went on in Anfield, and police officers come out. I used to advertise them in the paper, um, these stolen cars, and sell them to unsuspected buyers. Um, and I think I would come to light because a police officer unknowingly has replied to the ad, come out to buy the car, him and his wife, and then recognised me. He, he recognised me that I was a local, I was a local thief or or whatever. Um, and then from then the police put some type of operation on me and, and I've ended up getting locked up for it. But, uh, you know, I, I, that was the only thing I really stole and that was strictly because I knew that was the only thing I could do. I didn't have no other way of making money and that was it was over 25 years ago. So it was way over two decades ago that um, I was thinking it was 15, 16 and I stopped, I stopped doing that in, in my late teens. And it's it's something I regret. It's something because I've had, I've had things stolen off me myself in later years and you know you, you, you hate them for doing it but then you realise that you've done it yourself as a, as a kid so you can kind of relate with them do you know what I mean so mm. but it's something I regret it's something it's something I'm not proud of it's something I regret and it's something that was many decades ago Was there you know during that period there where you were obviously stealing cars to order was there ever a sense of sort of the impact it would have on victims in terms of them losing their personal property not whatsoever. No, not, I, I didn't understand any impact, any consequence. I didn't understand nothing. I, I, I was just, I was told to get paid by the insurance. And But even if I didn't think that, I think I still would have done it anyway. Or I didn't have any understanding of victims or empathy or nothing like that. Uh, and when, when, at what point does sort of offending then escalate to the point of, as you said, sort of firearms and, and other serious types of crimes that way. What, what What's that next step up? How does that how does that work? Yeah, well, in my case, I think, was a bit unique because as a result of one of the cars, uh, a car that crashed into police, um, it belonged to a family who were well-known in the pool. And then as a result of that, um, subsequently, I was getting bullied by them for money. I was paying them every penny I could. Um, and in the end, I just couldn't take no more. So I've ended up going to down south, south of Liverpool, and purchasing a large number of firearms. I'm coming back to Liverpool and just thinking, you know, uh, the only thing I can do is fight, fight against them. I went to the police. I did go to the police. I was that scared. Um, and they more or less, I wouldn't say laughed at me, but they more or less said, you deserve, you deserve it type of thing, do you know what I mean? But I don't think they understood the impact that was having on me. I was scared to go out. I was... I was only young at the time. I, I was I wasn't a kid, but I was probably seven, maybe seventeen, eighteen, uh, something like that, roughly. So they, these were big men, big established men, all doormen and so on. So you know, I, I, I they, they put they put this frightness on me. So there's nothing else I could do. And so, someone said you're just going to have to stand your ground. There's no other option. So as a result of went to city south of Liverpool and purchased a number of firearms and come back and that was that and when he had that firearm on me I always felt safe I always felt I remember there was one occasion I went shopping in town in Wade Smith and they had two two loaded firearms on me and I, and I just felt I don't know it, I was wanting to see people that I didn't like but I'm glad I never because I, I probably would have ended up shooting indiscriminately and hitting, maybe hitting a number of innocent people so there's many times I think about the potential consequences of what I've done 
and, and I think that I, w- I was lucky by the skin of my teeth to not come across anyone I didn't like in the city centre because no doubt I would I would have shot them I wouldn't have thought twice about it. The frame of mind I was in, um, there was a psychiatrist report done on me. I was arrested for a shooting um, in Whittle, um, and there was a psychiatrist report done on me, and psychiatrist concluded that I was more or less bonkers at that point in time, and I think that's why the judge. Uh, judge Globe, it was he. I think he was the head judge of Liverpool Crown Court. I think that's why he was very lenient on the offence with me. He gave me a very, very lenient sentence. Um, as a result, I think of reading that report, he knew I was messed up in the head, and I weren't. I weren't thinking right. I weren't thinking rationally. But, but thank God, I never killed no one, and thank God, I never went that way. There's many people that are harmed, that, you know, physically and mentally. But I'm just glad it never went beyond that and further than that. So here you are, a young man being, I suppose, in effect, blackmailed and extorted by a family that um, have taken a disliking to you, these these doorman-type characters, you, as you describe. Yeah, it, 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 I, I think to some degree it was justified because I did smash their car up. It was about a £70,000 car, £60,000 car, what oh, wow. I ripped off into a police car. So it was a big, expensive car. So they, they was half just... I wouldn't say they were justified, but I, could under, I can understand why they mm. done what they done. Because if it was the other way around, me at that time, and you know, if I was in their shoes, I probably would have done exactly the same. But I didn't know it was their car; it was a genuine error, and you know, so I, I just got dragged into something. I never stole it, neither. I just bought it from a fair party, so I never even stole the car. So, so someone passed it on to me, and then I didn't know whose vehicle it was. I didn't know what I was getting into, and I, I was out of my death. So here you are trying to deal with this situation i suppose where i'm leading to here is how does a young man that's had very very little exposure with sort of the illegal firearms market begin to even start to to source firearms to defend himself it, it, it was it was an, an asian guy who put me in touch with someone down south to source these guns and what i've done how i've done it i went around a load of people got a load of money together in return for giving them some of the some some of the arsenal, and that's how I've got my own guns for nothing. I think I end up with about two or three for nothing, three, because I've overcharged the price that they were going for. I've added extra money on, yeah, to the people that wanted them. So that's how I've come to source my guns. The very first firearms that that I ever come into contact with. And I, know and I remember. Sa- oh, I'm sorry. No, so I, was, I know this sounds like a crazy question, but. You know, I was a firearms officer for my entire life. And obviously, the, you know, safe, I could call it safe handling of firearms. There's a lot of training that goes on just to sort of work out how to use them. Was there sort of an element of sort of this is how this thing works? Yeah, well, I went I went to the place, uh, to the city where, where I got them. And there was about 10, 10, eight to ten guys. And they showed me how to load it, how to put the ammunition in the magazine, how to put the magazine in the gun. Um, and they showed them, they, they tested it in the premises and that was that they showed me how to use it effectively and then i remember when i went back to look bill i went and tested um just to check that i could do what needed to be done and it was quite straightforward it weren't the most difficult of tasks but they, they, they did show me how to work it and what to do uh, and that was that but uh, subsequent to that i've ended up getting involved in the manufacturing sale of firearms uh, i had like a factory that was manufacturing them um, and like a, I wouldn't say a shooting range, but I, I had a place where I test them. And it was on one occasion when the police had me under surveillance, 
where I touched them in, in a wooded area in Liverpool. I can't remember how many tested. It was a couple of firearms that went in and tested. And I thought, I thought they're police, because I, I know it sounds bizarre and every criminal would say this, but nine times out of ten, I'd always pick up when I, I had like a sixth sense. And nine times out of ten, I'd sense when the police were following me. And I said to these people who was with, they look like police. And one of them said, no, it's not. It's, it's the tag, the tag people, the button, the tag on. And, and I went, it was police. I was in, a, I was in, I went over to Whittle on another occasion and there was a girl who was with and I said, they're police watching me. And she went, they're not, they're not, you're too paranoid. And it turned that it transpired that, that they were. So the majority of the time, I, I used to pick up that I was being followed. But on, on one occasion, when they had me under surveillance, um, they seen that we were testing firearms in the woods, in the wooded area. And then subsequently was leaving. They went in and found some spent cartridges. Um, we did pick most of them up, to be honest. But there's obviously some that we never picked up. Um, yeah, so that that was that. But well, I then went went into the manufacture and sale of firearms, and I was arrested for that in about two thousand and three. So we're talking two decades ago. So, on the first occasion that you get introduced by this Asian gentleman to this group that are, are selling firearms, is that a is that a is that a tense first meeting? Is there a level of apprehension from you as to sort of engaging with these people that are obviously selling um, items which ultimately if you're caught with can can have some serious ramifications what were sort of feelings and thoughts and trepidations around that i just felt relief i felt massive relief and i remember when i went to pick them up i went up with two girls two females <coughs> i went with two females and we put them on the like the back seat we put these little stoppers into higher the seat and we and we spread them out in, in the boot under the under the carpet so there was i think i probably come back with about 10 firearms um, I think I end up at about three and pass seven on. But no, I, I felt massive relief because I thought this is a way out of my problem. You know, I, I, I weren't thinking straight. I weren't thinking rational. My head weren't in the right place. I, I, I was petrified. So to have these guns, that took all that problem, all that issue away. How much and did you I was spend? Looking, it weren't my money. Probably, I'd, I'd say about 12,000, 12, 15,000. Wow. Wow. Roughly on a, on a, on a on average, I think we got about ten, um, and I end up with a, with a small handful and give the give the rest out to people, because it was the other people who put the money in the pot to buy them. So, so, I, I, so, so you you buy this cachet of firearms, as you say, you give quite a a large quantity away to people that have purchased them through you. You keep a quantity for yourself. You find yourself with this new sense of confidence you, you know you're carrying firearms openly i say openly in public but you're carrying them in public you know almost wanting to come across people that you didn't like to, to, to be able to display that level of confidence that you had what was the sort of first occasion after obtaining these these weapons that you you found yourself in a position of either brandishing or threatening somebody how soon after the purchase did you find yourself in a confrontation well I wouldn't say it was a confrontation. What 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 I decided then, because I developed a hatred towards drug dealers uh, from things that happened in my childhood. Um, I developed a strong hate towards drug dealers. As ironic as that might sound, because subsequently I went on to rob drug dealers and sell the drugs on. But I had a ha hatred towards drug dealers. So one of the things I ended up doing was robbing drug dealers' Rolexes, where, where using firearms. So I'd wait for them. I'd either creep into the house or I'd I'd, I'd wait for them. I'd get someone to phone them out and I'd put a gun to them and take the watch. And that, that become one of the trades that I was doing. And then, then I went on to manufacturing firearms 
um, reactivating manufacturing and selling them on. So that was my source of income. Um, but even now, years and years before I stole vehicles, I, I developed the mindset that I didn't want to be targeting normal people. So my gripe was with criminals, as bizarre it may sound. Mm. My gripe was with other criminals, even though I was a criminal myself. I didn't want to target any normal, and I'm not trying to justify me offending or say I, I was Robin Hood or, you know, I was some good character because it wasn't. But I've never, apart from when I was a young, when I was a kid robbing the cars, I've never ever harmed a normal person. But the, the, so, so people might have been caught up in the process, but it was never intentionally. It was never my intention to to hurt or disturb normal working class people. And when I say that, sometimes people try, think I'm trying to justify me offending. It's not a case of that. I just developed a hatred towards drug dealers. That was that. So they were my target, my number one target. Is the advantage, if there is any, I'm just looking at some of the upside of this, is one of the advantages to that <laughs> is that I would suspect that 99.9% .9 of the individuals that you came across where you stole a Rolex or you held a drug dealer at gunpoint, these characters aren't going to walk into a police station to report they're a victim of crime, I assume. Yeah, well, that was that's what you're saying was correct many, many decades ago. But now that's not the case. Drug dealers and criminals do report it to the police. Um, and I know kids that are in prison doing significant prison sentences for robbing drug dealers. And people, uh, members of the public, might think that's bizarre. Why? Why is the system protecting drug dealers and why is the system protecting criminals? You know, I, I know people who've got jail for going into someone's house and and, and taking cannabis off them and cocaine. And the drug dealers rang the police, and it's become a common trait for drug dealers to do now to contact the police and and say they've been robbed at gunpoint or they've been robbed at knife point. And the police know they're drug dealers, but they still charge the culprits and and, and put them through the courts. And, and and I think it's a bit double standards, to be honest. Maybe not on the police's behalf, but if you're a criminal, then it should it's the nature of the beast that you've got to watch out for the police and you've got to watch out for people trying to trying to rob your goods, whether it's drugs, your money, whatever it may be. And I think the type of criminal we're facing now in this day and age, the new age criminal, a vast proportion, a vast majority do go to the police. And that was even um, said by me, Barristers. He, he said, it's not the police that you need to watch or the authorities. It's other criminals that you need. This was some time ago when it, when, it, when it was on quite a big court case. He went, it's other criminals that you need to watch. He went, don't be watching the police or the authorities. Watch watch your peers, watch your fellow criminals. And, and, and that's... That resonates with me. It's stuck on me since, and and it's actually true. It's criminals. Criminals need to watch other criminals. It's not the police that they need to have the gripe with. It's the fellow criminals because that's who give the intel. That's who that's who put, you know, who put the information forward. You know, it's not old Dorothy down the road that says, oh, you know, Mike in number twenty six has got ten kilo of cocaine under his bed. It's other criminals that predominantly tend to lay the information. And I don't think the police are that clever just to just to do some guesswork and, and find out. You know, some of it probably is intelligence or good police and whatever it may be. But I think the majority of the people out there who were putting criminals in are fellow criminals. So yeah, I'd, I'd say that was right back then when I started doing it. But fewer criminals did go to the police, but that's not the case now. And even when I was still involved in crime, say even a decade ago, you know, every week we was in the police station, two thousand and nine to two thousand and. 13, every week, more or less every week or every week or two, we was in the police station because criminals were trying to press charges against us and criminals were having us arrested. I was never, not once, I cannot recall one time um, that I've been in the police station for a normal Joe public, a working class member of the public for having me arrested. It's always been drug dealers 
or other gang members or drug dealers' families. Now, I'm not justifying what we've done because a lot of the stuff we've done was bad. But we live in a bizarre society where criminals are getting other criminals locked up. But that's that's how it's become. So I'm intrigued by the sort of um, selection process of of the drug dealers and the individuals that you would come across in terms of how you would gather your own intelligence to identify people that you could um, confront, rob, challenge, however you best wish to describe it. What, how did you form that process? I was, I was quite, even when I was mixing with people, I was I, I was never rich. I was never wealthy from crime. I, I was not a good criminal, but I was a good I was a good thinker, and I, I was always the, like, if we're going and kidnap someone, I'd be the one to nine times out of ten to to to, to, to like to guide it, to, to to guide the operation and say I would do it the best way around and where would take them and so on, so on. So I was often the brains and the common sense to many of the things that were done. Do you know what I mean? And and as many mm-hmm. times I, I walked away from situations and or jobs, whatever you want to call them, I said no, it's too it's too hot or it doesn't guide you know it doesn't sit right with me because. A lot of the people I was mixing with were irrational. They were impulsive and they were irrational. They, they never used to think where I'd always look. When I got out in 2009, I'd always look at a situation from there on and think, should I do it or shouldn't I? Or what's the risk? What's the complications? What are the potential barriers that are going to pop up? But prior to 2009, I didn't used to give a crap. I was just erratic and I was willing to use a firearm wherever, whenever. But when I was sent to jail, and upon release in 2009, I was a lot more backseat type of approach. I was getting other people to do me dirty work, and I was every situation I'd face, and everyone would, would every drug dealer would, would rob. I'd always weigh up and risk assess it. I'd think, you know, how, how can we work it where they can't go to police? How can we reduce the prospect of them going to police? And there was many times I was we was locked up and we was released under investigation, and you know we we put pressure on the drug dealers in saying you know. I, I, Certain things certain where got them paranoid that bring attention to them. But when their dad was locked up and would be released under investigation, we'd then go back to them and, and say, We'll bring your operation hot so the police start looking at you. And then they'd get worried about that and then we'd, we'd drop the charges, if you understand what I mean. It was a bit of a reverse psychology with them. I remember there was one guy, there was a, there was a big main drug dealer in the pool that had us locked up, um, even though we never done nothing to him. There was, there was an alleged kidnap, allegedly, weren't even to do with me. And this big drug dealer asked these younger ones to get us nicked. So they got us locked up. So I've contacted the, the older one. I said, if that's how you want to play, then, then I'll, I'll, we'll come and plant two kilo of heroin in, in your garden. So he's then got the younger ones to drop the charges. But I never even done it anyway. I was just accused of it. And there was many things I was accused of that i never done. That's another issue when you're involved in that game and that line of work you get accused of a lot of stuff that you haven't actually done. I, I'm One thing I've always been intrigued by when I worked in organised crime, tackling outlaw motorcycle gangs in Australia, because that's where my policing career um, hails from, is that I was always intrigued by the circles that people kept and how you went through sort of maybe, if I can call it like a vetting process, as to people that you could trust. Is, is, is it was a process of just having least amount of people around you possible or what sort of process would you go through before you started to sort of trust people? Uh, I, I actually know a, f- a few outlaw bikers. Uh, I, met, I met them a couple of years ago um, and they are good people. So I think they're, 
their vetting process is a lot more stringent, a lot more stricter than than, mm. than other gangs. And I, I've had lengthy conversations with them. I've, I've met them and I've, I've spoke to them on many occasions. And I wanted to understand them and their vetting process and their, to get into their group, their motorcycle group is a lot more difficult than it is to get into a gang. Mm. We were more or less accepting anyone, uh, any any Tom Dick and Harry, who was wanting to come on board with us. We were more or less accepting. And those people who've got previous for being a grass or being this or being that, and what you find is criminals don't care. They tend to think, oh, if he's a grass, we're not bothered as long as he doesn't grass on us. And 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 that's the common mindset of criminals. But the out the outlaw motorcycle group, um, which you quoted, they're a lot more stringent and a lot more fussy who they accept in, who they open their doors to. Whereas when you're involved in low street. You know, street gangs, it's it's nowhere near the level of that. And so did you eventually become almost like a bit of a, can I describe it? It's a very American term, but sort of a crime boss. Were you sort of managing people that you were directing to commit offending? Is that sort of how this escalated? I wouldn't say a crime boss because there was many people around me that had more money than me. And there was many, many people around me that had more respect and were more feared than me. So I wouldn't say by any means, no, I was I was nowhere near the top. I was nowhere near the boss, um, but I know a lot of the media create me as uh, portray me as a gang boss and this and that. But no, it wasn't. But there was many times when I influenced or instructed kids or younger people, younger generations, to go and do things with firearms or with weapons, or I'd, I'd engage with gangs out of Liverpool to come in and do things in the pool, and I'd more or less instruct them what to do and how to do it. So to some degree, I wouldn't class myself as a boss, but I used to influence a lot of people do you know what i mean and, and it weren't that they looked up to me it was just that i was showing them things and putting them onto situations and, and jobs what to do with, with drug dealers and so on do you know what i mean and a lot of the people i mixed with were not from liverpool they were they were black and asian gang members from the south uh, as far as london so th that was the majority of the people who attended to mix with and at this point of your life, when you're, you know, you're influencing these younger people and you're getting a bit older, did you have like a girlfriend, a wife, children, family that were influencing you, telling you maybe this wasn't all a good idea? Were they aware of what was going on? No, because what you tend to find is is the girlfriend, your girlfriend, um, doesn't deter you from it because that's the type of woman you attract when you're involved in gangs and crime. You 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 attract a feral type of woman. Or, or should I say a woman with a federal mindset, even though they're not involved in gangs per se themselves, they that's what they want. That's what they that's what they choose. So they're not going to try and deter you from that because that's what they want you to be involved in. Do you know what I mean? Whether it's for financial gain, whether it's for reputation, whether it's whatever it may be, that's the type of women you attract. And that's what I say to a lot of these young kids who we speak to, the type of female you attract in this lifestyle is not the type of female who will stick by you in prison. And and, and that, that's a fact. That's a 100% fact. I'd say one in every hundred are probably loyal, but the rest are just in it for their lifestyle. And when you're no longer there, they'll move on to someone else who can fulfill that lifestyle and meet their expectations. But when, you, when you're out of that lifestyle, then these women that are going for gang members that never go for anyone who works in McDonald's or KFC, mm. they've, they've got a different mentality. They've got a, They're attracted to a particular type of man or a particular type of male and, and and that dominant feared whether it's financial gain i never had much money so 
I can't say it was money that attracted, even though sometimes he had big cars, it weren't really the money that attracted them because I never had that much money, believe it or not. But it was that lifestyle what attracted them and brought them on board. And a, a lot of females do like that. I don't know why, or they don't understand the, the long end consequence of being involved with that. House raids, being locked up, being questioned, you know, being dragged into disputes with rival gang members and so on, so on. So I think w women, as well as the males, women need educating as well. These aren't the type of people you should be getting into relationships with and forming relationships with and having children with, because it, it always ends up in tatters. And what you find, you know, I'm not trying to disrespect your your your, your profession or whatever, but what you what you find is the police have a common tactic where when they've got a perpetrator, say for example a gang member, they'll arrest the gang member's partner or girlfriend or wife to try and put pressure on the gang member to then plead guilty. And I've seen that many many times where females are arrested, even though there's very slight. I know the CPS have got to authorise the charge, but I've seen many cases where the woman has only been charged as a means to influence the men into pleading guilty. And I've seen that many times. Whether it's right or wrong, wrong it's a clever tactic and, and, and it's something that women don't foresee. But it's probably justifiable to some degree. Do you know what I mean? I'm not trying to... I, I don't know. It's just it's a bit of a sticky one, but women don't see that. They don't. They, they think because they're sat at home and they're not carrying a gun and they're safe, it, it doesn't work like that. Well, I, I assume they've been charged with benefiting from the crimes that have been committed no, and the money it, that's been that's been given to them. I wouldn't. That that's more recently. Um, but it used to be like assisting an offender or perverting yeah. the courts of justice or um, I don't know if something's found at the address, the, then they get charged as well. If there's a firearm found, for example, say, can I remember. Years ago, there was counterfeit clothing. There was a lot, big, big, uh, big amounts of it found at an address in Anfield. And the females, I, I had, I think I admitted it was mine, but the female whose house it was, she was also charged. And I, I, and I believe that was a tactic in case I pulled the plug and, and tried to run trial. So that was a tactic to try and push me into a guilty plea, which I pleaded guilty anyway, because it was only a small, you know, it was only a small case. But that was just one example. And... 2003, there was a girl arrested with me and there's intimidation of witnesses or something like that. And that, again, that was a tactic to push me into a, a guilty plea. You know, but it's, I don't think many men have got the mindset to think, no, I'm, I'm running a risk and, and fuck everyone else around me. A lot of drug dealers or a lot of criminals plead guilty uh, if, if the girlfriend gets off of it. And it is a clever tactic. It's a clever approach. I'm not sure if you're aware of it or you agree with it. Well, you know, nevertheless, it happens. And I think women need to be educated and be, and be aware of this. Even though they're sat at home and they're not carrying the weapons, it's so easy for them to fall into a charge and into a court case. Even if you drive someone, even if a woman drives someone to a hotel um, and, and they don't even know what's going on, they can still be pulled in for it. Do you know what I mean? If there's been a shooting and, and, and they wash the clothes or something like that, it's... They can still get. There's always ways to drag the female into it, and I think that's why women do need to be educated in that respect. Out of interest, when did you know? You know, we've spoken about sort of your early childhood offending and an escalating point of obviously getting older, acquiring these firearms, starting to influence younger people. Was there a moment in the past where you look back and think things got really out of hand? 
No, not really. No, not whatsoever. Um, no, there's not. There's situations of regret, and, and there's many things of regret, but it never got. No, it, it was. It was always not really. I've been stabbed. I've been. I've, I've been firearms discharged. I mean, I've been injured through gun and life crime. It's it just. It's one of them. It, it didn't really phase me. I'm more scared of wasps than I am a gun. So it didn't really. You become. You normalise it. it. It didn't really phase me. Guns and knives didn't really phase me that much. I think there was one occasion when I got stabbed where I thought I was going to die. I thought they were going to kill me. Because um, they all had guns. And I, I, I thought it was... I didn't even know what it was over, but it turned out that it was it was a mistake. They thought I'd done something that I never... That was that was some time ago. That must have been about 15 years ago. Um, 14 years ago or something. But that was the only time I had fear in me. But apart from that, even when I used to get shot at and so on, it didn't used to phase me. So what led to you um, inevitably being arrested and, and, and being imprisoned? What what crimes were you eventually caught for? Um, there was the gun factory. Um, there was the shooting. Uh, there was the firearm in 2003 or 2004. I went to jail for that. I got out in 2009 and then I took a more backseat approach. Um, and if we was carrying weapons, I'd have someone with me to carry the weapon. Uh, and then I was released in 2009. I was arrested again in 2016, January, I think it was. Um, I was sent to jail then, and it was that sentence, it was during that sentence that I decided <coughs> that crime wasn't for me, and it's not. I watched a programme in prison, um, and I seen the impact on, on the child's parents, a, a young kid who was shot in Liverpool accidentally. Um, and the person who'd done it, I, I used to speak to them in strange ways, and I thought they were all right people, but... When you watch that televised program, that documentary, and you see the the crap the parents went through, and and the impact that had on the parents, and whether you, whether you're a criminal or whether you work at Woolworths or McDonald's, you, your child's your child, and, and and criminals need to see that. I, I know a lot of criminals, and I've done it myself. Where your target addresses, where there's children, where there's women, and, and you don't care because you're that reckless. And whether you're shooting houses or, or whatever it may, you know, I don't want to make any admissions here and say I used to shoot houses, but you, you're that reckless. You don't think about the potential consequences. What 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 if I would have shot a house and there would have been a kid behind the door or a kid behind the window? You, you don't think about, about that. And it would have been so easy for me to be on a charge for murdering a child. It, it, well, it we've, had, been... we've, we've had that recently, haven't we? Yeah, and, and I think there's been a, a few occasions in which children have been caught up in a crossfire Mm. or innocent, without quoting any specific cases, there's been no. a couple of occasions just in Liverpool uh, alone and where children have been caught up in the crossfire and it's so easy to happen. Mm. And then the next minute you're branded as a child killer, you're branded as this, you're branded as that. And it went intentional. I'm not trying to justify it, but I think anyone in the right mind would be sitting there thinking, why? Why did I? Why, did, why didn't they just go and get a job? Or why, didn't they try, why did they have to go out and do that that night? But even if you never went and done it that night, There'll be another night when it could could have potentially happened. Because if you're discharging firearms and you're reckless and you're indiscriminately shooting, then it's going innocent people are eventually going to be caught up in the crossfire. It's in it's inevitable, and and it's happened many times. And it could have been me. I always think I look at cases and think that could have been me. I I could have been there for shooting an innocent kid unintentionally. But there was many times when I've done things where innocent people could have been caught up in the crossfire. And and it does scare me. It it scares me. You know, it's it, it could have easily been me, but I'm I'm glad it weren't. And and it's only by the grace of God that it wasn't. And that lifestyle, once I seen that 
child's parents on the documentary, even though it was only actors acting it out, it, it just changed me whole perception. And then from that moment, I thought, nah, it's not for me. I'm I'm done with that lifestyle. It's and then upon release and even before release, uh, I started speaking to victims' families. Um, I've come close with quite a few of them, people who've lost people to violent crime, the children, the brothers, um, to gun crime and knife crime, and I've become close with quite a few of them. And I've stayed in touch with them, and I speak to some of them quite regularly. And I'm more, I more advocate now for the victims as opposed to the perpetrators, because I find that the perpetrators tend to have little empathy, and they don't really, they don't really give a crap. And evidently say the vast majority is false compliance. Like they'll say in prison, oh yeah, we want to change, we want to get a job, or they'll say to the judge, oh we've got a job, we've had a job offer, and. I've done it myself. I've been there in front of judges with references saying I've got a job offer, I'm going to start, and there's this, and my career, and I've got a stable relationship. And 99.99% of it was absolute crap. You're feeding the judge full of crap. And many of these judges digest this. Some judges are good at identifying the good from the bad and, and the right from the wrong, but many of the judges di digest this and believe it and give a lenient sentence. And, and I think that's where we're going wrong. Many professionals are duped by offenders, because offenders tend to be highly manipulative, and a lot of it is false compliance, all this saying they want to change and they want to do this and do that, it's nonsense. 99% of the time, it's nonsense. Can I can I touch on, I suppose, the transition from being an influential, I don't know, influential criminal out on the, out on the streets, sort of making decisions and influencing people, to being found guilty of maybe a series of crimes and then being incarcerated in one of the prisons in the United Kingdom. What is that transition like in terms of going from the outside world to the inside world in prisons in terms of the hierarchical structures which exist within those buildings? Look, well, if we look at 2003, um, before I went to prison in 2004, I was a nightmare. I was causing, I was causing numerous drug dealers hell. And... You know, none of them used to say a word to me. If any of them phoned me and said, then I'd go straight to the house and I'd, I'd, I'd do whatever needed to be done. I was a nightmare. I was carrying weapons. I was carrying firearms. I was meeting 20 stone men on my own. I was about 10 stone with missing teeth, with noodle legs. And I was pulling up in a stolen car with a gun, meeting men on my own. And, and he just thought it was bonkers. I remember there was a place in Whittle. I went to and met these two fellas. They were absolute massive monsters of men, huge men. And I jumped out. I was about 10 stone, missing teeth. A, a, a pair of white socks on and a pair of shorts that didn't even fit me and I've went straight over to them and they must have thought it, it was this they must have thought it was a lunatic but the only reason I w if I never had the gun I wouldn't have done that it's only because they had a firearm on me I thought you know if they say it I'll shoot them both it didn't phase me and because they had that because they had that front about me and that that willingness about me I, I, I think that what put people off but when I went to prison and I never had no gun because I weren't a fighter I was just a skinny, skinny guy. When I went to prison, that's when I come unstuck. Because, and even a prison officer called, I don't know if I'm allowed to name him, but uh, Mr. Peters in Walton, he assaulted me. Um, there was an investigation into it. I don't know what come of it. But he said to me, he said, you've got no guns in here. And it, and it was right that that stuck in me head. And I was having a nightmare of a time in prison in 2004, I think it was. I was having a nightmare of a time. Because why, why, did what, he, why, why did he assault you? Because he was paid by, he, he was influenced or paid by outside 
people. This was decades and decades ago, so but there was people in there. I, I just had a nightmare of a time, and and Peter's this prison officer should I say sorry was friendly with the people who I had under pressure. Some of them were in prison. And, you know, there was another time when he opened the door and someone threw hot water on me. It, it was, I had a nightmare of a time. Obviously, it's years ago. Everyone's got older and everyone's moved on. It, it is what it is. I don't hold no grudges. You know, but I don't know. It, it, was, it was a nightmare. It was horrible. And that's what they're, you find many gangs. They're traumatic, they're, they're traumatic experiences to go through, nonetheless. 100% they are. But that's what you find. Many gang members who are dangerous, lethal people outside on the streets go to prison. And and they're getting terrorized. They're getting they're getting beat up because they can't fight, and they they're getting a hard time in certain prisons. Not in every prison, but when I went to another prison where where it was full of people from down south, then the tables turned. Peterborough was one of those prisons. The the table the tables turned then because then I was with the people I was mixing with, and you know. So it depends what prison you're in, but I did have a hard time in Walton. I went to all course and it was fine. The staff were fine. The prisoners were fine. It was not, not an issue. But a lot of gang members do have a hard time in prison. No matter how dangerous, no matter how reckless or lethal they are, prison is a different kettle of fish. And unless you've got 10 of your mates in there, then there's a strong potential you're going to come on stuck. And, 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 and do you have the ability, if you're getting a hard time, to be able to report that stuff, to say, listen, I just want to be in isolation. Every five seconds, I'm getting picked on. No, they, well, they, they tried to offer me the, um, the VP wing, which I declined. I think it was K wing or something like that. I declined it straight away. Um, so I've ended up going on, I think I went to segregation or, or, or the hospital wing. I can't remember where they put me. Um, but no, they, 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 there's, not, there's no measures in place to protect people in prison. And one of the things I find is when they're shipping gang members out and the gang member raises concern. Obviously, this is decades ago, but I know it still happens now because I still speak to prisoners' families and stuff like that. Um, when gang members express concern about being transferred, the staff don't care. It's mostly the security governor or the security PO or um, the, the security CM. They don't care. They, they just security move them to another prison where they know there's going to be rivals. And I think that's a... I've got respect for prison staff and the job they do. And it's very, very rare or criticised prison staff, but they have to understand the potential risks they're creating by shipping a gang member to a particular prison where he's got issues that could be a risk not only to other prisoners, but also to staff. Because if gang members try and attack him and a member of staff gets caught in the, in the crossfire, then, you know, there's a huge risk. And I, and I think prison staff need to be foreseeing this risk and, and need to be working to address this. They shouldn't be sending gang members where, where there's a threat. Can I ask a question just in terms of one thing that I've always been, I suppose, kind of intrigued by is, you know, throughout your life and my life, there's been periods where we've seen police officers in incarcerated for crimes they've committed. I suppose if we look more recently, David Carrick and Cousins been put away for some horrific and abhorrent crimes. Um, I can't imagine... It's not a great existence, as you say, for gang members. I can't imagine it's a great existence for police officers that commit serious offences, end up getting um, a, a custodial sentence. Have you witnessed sort of the activities that go on against cops? Yeah, the, well, and, and that's not necessarily... And I, I know there's a common belief with that, but that's not necessarily the case because I was a HMP Berwyn and there was police, seven police officers serving sentences there. 
I used to speak to one of them on education. He seemed like a decent fella. I can't remember the exact case. I think he's from Yorkshire or something like that. But he used to, you know, we seen the work. He seen the work I was wanting to do. We seen I want to do rehabilitation, the change, and he used to speak to me quite regularly. And and he seemed like a decent fella. And I know he went to jail for doing whatever he done, but he was a police officer. He was in prison, and he never got any hassle. He was on a wing. They tend to be put on wings where there's uh, a better selection of people where it's like fraudsters and yeah. VAT people and older people and they're not going to put a police officer on a wing where it's full of young louts who were causing trouble and smoking spice they, they tend to put them on the quieter wings and in Berwyn I think it was I can't even remember the wing but I know there was a quiet wing and that's where the police officer was located And but he every day he'd walk on the walkway with all the other prisoners and he'd go to education and everyone knew he was a police officer I think there was even two there in fact sorry well, I used to speak to one quite regularly. Everyone knew he was a police officer. He never got any hassle whatsoever. Every now and again, he'd get a few funny looks, but there was never an issue. We never had any issues whilst I was there. But does that very much depend on the type of crime that you're found guilty of? No, because he's a police officer. So if that police, it's, it's irrelevant of what he's done. Don't get me wrong, if he was a sex offender, he probably would have had issues. But the fact that he's a police officer... That's that's the fact. That's what people are looking at. And I think if he would have been in another prison, I think he would have had a hard time. But yeah. the fact that he was in that prison because of that environment and how it was run at the time, even though it was terribly run, there was, I don't know, it, it was a bit like Loudon Grange, mm. um, which, which is a cafe. It just has a different type of... Uh, Berwyn's gone to crap now. With It's violent, and, 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 and I think they've lost control of it. But I can't explain it. It was just the... When that police officer was there, it was more... I don't. I don't know. It's just. It, it's. I think it's run by psycho. The, the the psychologically work out what's what and put them on the wings where they're going to be right. But he never had issues, and he was in education with with some right scrotes, and no one ever done nothing to him. So, whilst you're inside, do you watch this documentary? You have this moment where you say, "Listen, this life that I'm leading is not for me anymore. I want to." get out of here i want a clean slate and i want a life which you know isn't surrounded by crime possession of firearms hanging around with all these people that are up to no good i suppose the biggest question i always have in that scenario is how on earth do you pull yourself out of those circles of individuals how do you step back away from that 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 um th th those acts of criminality which have which before you went in were part of your life how do you step away from it yeah, it's massively difficult, but, you know, I, I honestly thought when I was looking how am I going to do this, I thought the biggest barrier were going to be the police. I expected to be released and be harassed daily by the police. And you know what? They, I think, and I'm not, I'm not trying to just say this because you're an ex-police officer, but the police are the only people who have given me support since being released. Hmm. No other organization, no other agency has given me any support. Wow. So, and, you know, I don't want to offend anyone or... I don't want people saying, well, we've supported. No one's done nothing for me. Within 24 hours of being released, I had the job. I got my job myself. I got the qualifications myself. Everything I've done, I've done myself. Mm. I've had no no support whatsoever. But what the police have done, they, 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 they reinforced my beliefs that, look, we're not, here, we're not here to harass you. We're not here to make your life hell. And we're here to try and help you and and keep you, keep you on the right path. And I used to speak to some of them quite lengthy conversations and to give me advice this is the best thing to do and you know that's the best approach to take and you know they, they, they've, they've been easy with me they, they've been 
I'm on a a, a serious crime prevention order, he, and Everton's just. I, I send them a message if I'm staying out, or and Everton's laid back. Whereas, for example, when you look at the probation service, Everton's it's just barriers upon barriers, and you'd expect this is what criminals fail to understand and recognise that they all think it's the police who are going to be on breathing down the throats and making their lives a nightmare, and that's generally not the case. And from experience, I was one of the worst of the worst. So if they're going to harass anyone, they'd definitely be choosing me to harass, and they haven't done that. You know, there's certain police officers who I don't like, there's certain police forces which I think are not as good as others, but overall, the, the only thing I've had from them is, is support, even when I go certain places, that I, I, they speak to me and just in general conversation, just about what's happened, like, you know, just day-to-day -day conversation and it's just people say to me why are you speaking to him he, he's a he, he works for the police and why not i don't commit crime i'm not I, I don't know it's it's different it's weird and i never ever expected that whereas other organizations and other agencies they put the barriers on me doing my youth project they, they try and stop me like i spoke to some kids not long ago and talked them out of using the firearm um I was speaking to them for quite a while, and I told professionals, and he went, it's a police matter, you should have rang the police, you shouldn't have got involved. How was it a police matter? They hadn't committed the crime. They were talking about committing it, and I believe strongly that had I not spoke to them for that length of time and talked them out of it, then they would have went on to, to use a firearm and, and potentially shoot someone who, who owed the money or who dropped them. And I talked them out of that, and I got criticised by professionals saying it was a police matter, you should have rang the police. Why? Because then it, then it erodes trust with kids, who I'm trying to help. And also, no crime had been committed. It was only in the discussion process of them saying it as a possibility, possible cause of action that they were going to take. And I only deterred them by saying about the prisons and the impact and if the person dies, what would happen, the type of sentence to probably attract, the type of prison to go to, the type of character in those prisons, and also the girlfriends and the partners. You know, I... I a day going away for them and I, and I said it doesn't work it's not practical I said where's your money I said you're making money now where's your money that's not going to last you if you go to prison you'll be skint you'll be depending on your family members to send your post orders your girlfriend will leave, your girlfriend will leave you and I, I, I told them about certain prisons I've been to my experiences with certain types of prisoners and the high security estates and stuff like that and in the end I said look you're making money now why rock the boat I'm not saying it's right what they do, how they make money. It's something to do with cannabis, whatever it is. But I was trying to get them towards the lesser of two evils, get them away from the firearms. I said, look, just stick up what you're doing because as soon as you start pulling firearms out, the police will be all over you and you won't get no peace. They'll be all over you, whether you get nicked for the shooting or not. You're just going to attract big attention. I said, so why just keep your head down and just do what you're doing and crack on and go home every night to your girlfriend and have a good life. Even though we didn't agree with what type of lives they lead, I was trying to avoid them from the lesser of... I was trying to point them to the lesser of two mm. evils, if you know what I mean. Whereas mm. if I would have said, oh, you shouldn't be committing crime whatsoever and, and cannabis is wrong and you shouldn't smoke it, you shouldn't sell it, then they wouldn't have listened to me. But what I was trying to do was divert them away from the firearms or even thinking in that way, in that frame of mind, divert them away from it and, and you know, avoid them going down that route. Do you think and we've lost? Do you, do you think we've lost the battle on drugs anyway, though? I don't know. The battle on the, the battle on drugs has always been lost. There's always been drugs from from when I was a kid. 
Mm. Um, so the, I, I think the battle on drugs has always been lost. But I think what we're seeing is an ideology, a new ideology, yeah. where people are more inclined to be violent. And violence is the first port of call what people will resort to. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and the younger victims and perpetrators are getting younger and younger. And it's, I think, professionals, I put something on my Twitter today and, and some ex-police officers disagreed and, and they said, don't oh, know, it's this and that. And I'm thinking, if you've got the solution, don't solve the issue. I know, I'm confident I've got the solution, but I haven't got the platform. I haven't got the support to go and put it into practice because I've got professionals putting barriers in my way. And I don't want to say what service or what organisation it is, but they're just doing it and they can. The last meeting I had with them, they say, no, no, we're, we're preferred to do it with a police officer or we're preferred to do it with an organisation. And it's not, it's not practical, it's not realistic. But I'm confident I've got the solution to reduce these issues significantly in whatever area I, I was working at. So if it was Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, London, whatever it is, I'm good at, I used to get called a chameleon at one point because I'm good at adapting to my environment. And a lot of criminals are mixed with, and a lot of criminals are dealt with and sold guns to with black and Asian gangs. So I can, and a lot of people are mixed with in prison with black and Asian, the vast majority. So I can change to my audience. I can communicate with different audiences. And I'm confident I've got the solution. But what I say to these professionals, if you who disagree with me, why don't they put their idea into practice then and see how successful it is because they're not won't be they're always blaming government they're blaming this it's nonsense it's professionals youth workers yacht workers probation service you, you know it's children's services these i'm not saying they cause the, the issue or they cause kids to pick up guns but they're a barrier to the solution and that's, that's my argument, what I try and have all the time, but people just seem to get offended and don't listen. They've got this liberal do-gooder approach, what doesn't work. And this empathetic, that they, they, can't, they can't see no wrong in these kids who are using the guns and using the knives. To, oh, they're just troubled kids, they're suffering trauma, they've had traumatic upbringing. You know, there's many children out there that have had bad, bad upbringings and traumatic experiences that don't go and use a gun or a knife. There's many children out there that are suffering poverty, and struggling to eat that don't use a gun and knife. And most of the kids who are using the guns and knives aren't making significant financial gain anyway. So, you know, they're not going to miss nothing, and we can re-educate them, the mindset, and get them into alternative things where they're going to source a legitimate income more than what they're earning from crime. Because most of the kids that I speak to, they're skint. They haven't got no money. I was skint as a gang member. I never had no money. Okay, I'd rob someone for five grand, ten grand, whatever, I'd spend it. It'd be gone. Rob a drug dealer for 10 grand, it'll be gone. I mean, so these kids haven't got the money anyway. They haven't got money. So and that's what professionals don't understand. They're saying, but they're not going to leave that lifestyle because they're making money. They're not. They're making minute amounts of money. Minute. They're skint. They're robbing bikes off people. They're robbing electric bikes. They're robbing man bags off people. They're robbing coats at night point. Canada goose coats. These, these kids who are doing it haven't got money. Whereas if you give them a legitimate source of income, then they're going to realise a stable income every week. It's going to be difficult and they're going to have money in their pocket. But you've got to also educate them on how to adapt the lifestyle a bit and change who they're mixing with, you know what I mean? But mm. these professionals, they just it's just barriers. And I, I remember a social worker saying to me, Chucky, you, you, you shouldn't get a kid a Chucky doll. Uh, and, and I said, why? And they went, it'll influence it towards crime and they'll turn violent. And I thought, what, what nonsense am I am I listening to? But it's it's absolute nonsense. 
And the child in question now, years and years on, is in top sets in class and, and you know, one of the leading ones in the class. So these social workers, these professionals, probation officers, okay, they might be able to do a risk assessment, but even youth workers and youth organisations that are a barrier to the problem, they've got the wrong approach. I got, I've been to meetings with the police and violence reduction partnerships and the stuff I hear coming from the VRP is absolute nonsense. But I don't want to offend them and say, look, you're talking crap. So I'll politely say, look, I disagree with you. And then they get offended then. Oh, we, uh, we, yeah, we, we don't really want to work with him. We don't, uh, I don't really give a crap if they want to work with me anyway. But I'm giving my honest opinion. And if I'm not right, then prove me wrong. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? What they're yeah. doing is not working. It's not mm. working. They, they've got some tiptoe approach, this cotton glove approach that isn't, it's not effective. One of the, um, one of the biggest challenges facing the UK at the moment, more broadly London, is the disproportionate amount of young men carrying knives and inflicting an imaginable amount of pain and suffering on <coughs> so many other young men and their families and girls. You know, we only had last week a young 15-year-old girl waiting at the bus stop, um, backing up a buddy. Um, was then stabbed to death. These crimes at the moment appear to be disproportionately affecting black communities. Um, yeah, is that is that a correct observation? Yeah, I'd, I'd say in London, in Liverpool, I don't think it's the case because you've got the likes of Ava White, who I think it was Ava White. She was stabbed in town and murdered uh, by a knife. Or she was an innocent innocent girl going about her business. Yeah, um, so. I wouldn't say across the country, but I'd say in certain parts of the country, the likes of London, perhaps even Birmingham to some degree, then the perpetrators and the victims tend to predominantly be black. Uh, be black, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think part of the issue is you've got the black community shouting and stamping their feet about racism and stop and searching. But these people who are stamping their feet, they've got no experience or no understanding. Just because they're youth workers, they've got no understanding of being gang members or what it consists of. And it's it frustrates me when I see people saying, abolish the police and abolish it. If we abolish the police, then should we give power to the gangs? It makes no sense. And even the issue, uh, the, the recent issue where a guy, I don't want to say the name because I don't want to make reference to the case specifically, but a guy was shot Um a gang member who was previously affiliated to gangs. I'm not going to say he was actively involved in gangs on the day. <clears throat> he had previous affiliations to gangs. There was a ongoing court case where his co-defendants were charged with an attempted murder. The vehicle was allegedly had intelligence on that. It was linked to firearms. He was shot. Um, and then as a result, a police officer's been charged with that. And, and if police officers are, are, are risking being charged, then how are they able to do their job? Because there was many times when I was stopped by armed police and I was raided by armed police, and I knew in my mind if I made the wrong move or went for something. There was a time when he raided me at, at an address in 2003 where he had a loaded firearm next to my bed, and I knew if I went for that gun, they would have shot me without a doubt. And, you know, even if I make a wrong move and I haven't got a firearm on me, how would they supposed to know in a split-second decision, how are they supposed to know whether I've got a gun or not? You know, I could be putting my hands down my pants to scratch my leg, but... I know as a gang member, as an ex-gang member, or at that time, I knew that if I put my hands down my pants, then that 
there's a realistic prospect of me being shot as a result of that. So I'd comply with armed police, 100% of would. And I think anyone who doesn't, and as a result, they, they, they come off worse, they, they get shot, then they've got to take the responsibility or some responsibility. I don't believe, even though there's a lot of police officers I don't trust and don't like, but I still don't believe that any police officer puts on his uniform and with the intent to going out to kill someone. It's mm-hmm. nonsense. And, 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 and I believe that they hated me, they despised me. And do you think they ever... Did they think they ever come to work and think, oh, we want to go out and kill him today? No, it's nonsense. It's 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 not that personal. It, the, the 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 dislike or the hatred isn't that personal for them to want to go out go to work just to kill someone. It's nonsense. But the black community need to understand it don't work like that. And you know, the certain individual that was killed, he was affiliated to gangs. They they, they was affiliated to firearms. So if I'm a police officer, if I put myself in the police officer's shoes. What am I? What am I supposed to do? You know, risk being killed, or and if police officers are scared to do the job, then the power is going to be given to the gangs and you know potential terrorists as well. Because you've got police officers and the guns in, and don't you think that's going to increase the risk to the public? You've got all these people, these so-called prominent people, saying yeah, hand the guns in, they shouldn't be armed, we shouldn't have armed police. Then who battles the terrorists? What are we going to do if, if there's a terror attack? We all go with mop, mop poles. It mm-hmm. makes no sense whatsoever. And if if the win, 2009, I was reluctant to carry firearms because of the IRVs and the Matrix. Now, if we take the IRVs away, 100%, I would have been carrying guns. 100%, there wouldn't have been no deterrent. And if you've got no armed police on the streets, criminals will be more inclined and more comfortable to carry firearms because there'll be no deterrent. Because a main deterrent to an armed criminal is an armed police officer. That's what's going to put you off. That's what's going to deter you. And if there is none of that, then what, where's your deterrent? You may as well carry a gun 24-7. Well, it's a very good point you come on to. And I suppose just I suppose rounding out our conversation towards the end here now is is sort of we look at knife crime. And one of the deterrents, which is a, is a bit of a sensitive topic, is is stop and search. Now, you know, we see these horrific incidents occur where young people lose their lives and you get police commentators come out, you get politicians coming out, you get all sorts of people coming out, lending their views and their opinions as to what should occur. Now, in my view, there has to be a deterrent in order for somebody to stop doing something. And the deterrent in terms of carrying a knife is not only sentences and penalties associated with being found in possession of a weapon, in this case, a knife, but it's also the fear of being stopped and searched by police. Do you think that there is an argument that stop and search should be intensified across the country until we're back in control, until people realise that it's not worth carrying a knife in public or at all um, to to, to minimise, reduce the loss of life, which clearly is out of control at the moment across the UK? Well, let me give you this comparison, 2001 to 2004. I was I weren't being stopped by police. There weren't really no stop and searches. And I was carrying a firearm constantly. Most days oh, out of the week I'd have a gun on me. When I got out of prison in two thousand nine, I was constantly, daily being stopped by police, arm response, matrix officers, constantly. And that deterred me from carrying guns. There was still I, I never deterred me from committing crime, but and I'm not saying we never touch weapons or come into contact with weapons, but rather than carry a gun daily or weekly, I might touch one every now and then, or I get someone else to carry it, or would would leave it because it's too there's too much of a risk. Get stop and search, hundred 
100% works 100% and that's not just coming from my personal experience it's coming from when we was dealing with gangs from as far as London who were reluctant to come into Liverpool with weapons because they feared being stopped by police 100% without any doubt I've dealt with gangs across the across the country and 100% stop and search works and when you've got these these I don't know what you call them protesters these these public speakers whatever you want to class them as when you've got them coming out saying stop and search and it needs to be reduced that's nonsense that increases the risk of the public 100% because if I weren't being stop and search in 2009 onwards I would have been carrying weapons more often without a doubt and when you carry a weapon then there's an increased prospect of you using that weapon. Because if I had a gun on me, for example, there's more chance of it getting into an argument, so I'm just going to use my gun. Simple. I've done it in 2003. Random guy in the streets, soldier, said something to me, shot him. That was that. If I never had that gun on me because I was scared of being stopped, for example's sake, I wouldn't have been able to shoot him. Do you see the logic? Now, these people who were talking about it shouldn't be stopping search, whether you're a politician, ex-police officer, whatever you want to describe yourself as, they don't know what they're talking about. They either don't know what they're talking about or they're saying what's popular to put money in their pockets. It's nonsense. Stop and search works. I've been on the receiving end of it more than anyone in the country. I'm white. I was stopped three, four, five times a day on some days. I remember there was a day when I stopped five times. Constantly, constantly being stopped. Constantly, constantly being disrupted. And it was harassment. I agree it was harassment. And many of them wouldn't... A lot of people would look and say it weren't justified because they never, ever recovered nothing. I got stopped hundreds and hundreds of times. And I think the only thing they found on me was a bulletproof vest and a pair of weighted gloves. So out of all those years of stopping and searching me, from 2009 to 2014, 13, it was a good couple of years, about four or five years of being stopped and searched constantly. Not once did they find a weapon, but what it done, how it was effective, it prevented me carrying a weapon without a doubt, and 100% it works. I, I speak to gang members who used to come to Liverpool or come to wherever, and they didn't want to, they didn't want to come into the city. So would meet them, would meet, meet them elsewhere. And the ones that they come to the city wouldn't, wouldn't bring weapons with them. And these are gang members who carry weapons often, wow. whether it be knives, firearms, 100% it's effective. And they'd always say the matrix, the matrix, we don't want to get stopped. We don't want to get stopped. And all of them who I'm referring to were either black or Asian. Mm. And you know, I'm not saying only black people carry weapons or only Asian people carry weapons. Well, what I'm saying is, they feared being stopped in Liverpool, but they didn't fear that much being stopped where they live. So they were more reluctant to come to Liverpool than they were. I, I, I remember certain ones from London. They were they were fine when when I went when I met them in London. They were carrying weapons, but when they come to Liverpool to meet me to go for food or, or go out somewhere, they wouldn't have the weapons on them because they were more scared of being stopped in Liverpool because they knew there was a greater prospect than being stopped and searched. So stop and search, 100%, without any doubt, does work. And it needs to be intensified. Definitely. It deters people from carrying weapons. I'm not saying it's going to stop everyone carrying weapons, but if it reduces the amount of times an individual carries a weapon, if someone's got a gun, I'm not saying he's never going to carry it if, he's get, if they're getting stopped and searched, but it'll reduce the amount of times he'll carry it. And... The, the result of that will be it will save lives because the less you're carrying a weapon, the less you're going to use it. If you've got a knife on you every day, there's greater chance of you using it as soon as you get into an argument. Same with a firearm. So I, I've been on the receiving end of stop and search more than anyone in the country, and it's all documented. 
So, and I know it works. There's no doubt about that. So these protesters or whatever you call them, these community community leaders, they, I think they need to pipe down. And because what the, what they're saying is absolute nonsense. And it frustrates me even when I see ex-police officers say, no, it's not about stop and search. They don't know what they're talking about. Even though they've been an ex-police officer, you'd expect them to understand the positive impact stop and search has for the community, not for mm. the criminal, for the community. It keeps communities safer. And until you speak to families who've lost the kids, and every day it fucking tears their hearts out, lost the kids to gun crime, knife crime, every day it tears their heart out. They have to live that every day. The kids don't, the kids are dead. But every day the family members have to live that nightmare. Why aren't these community leaders and community volunteers, youth workers, whoever, why aren't they speaking out for the families, for the victims who have to live with this crap every day of losing someone to gun crime or knife crime? And it's not only that, then you've got the perpetrator's family who've lost their son or their family member because they're doing a life sentence, 25, 30 years. You know, so two families are losing the child. But it's just, you know, it's more unfortunate that one's in a, one's in a grave and, and, and it's them families that are being impacted every day. Some of them can't sleep. Some of them cry day day after day for years and years. Whereas if stop and search was increased, that potentially could have prevented their loved one being stabbed or shot. Mm. So that's it. I know 100%. Look, I'm not making no money by saying stop and search works. I'm not getting any benefit from anyone. Do you know what I mean? I, I still, so it's not beneficial to me to come on here and talk crap and say something works when it doesn't. I know 100% it works. And even the kids I speak to on the street, when I tell them about Liverpool, and they say their exact words are, oh, fuck that, we wouldn't be carrying nothing there. Because I say that you've got more chance of getting stopped in Liverpool if the Matrix here, they'll be on you. Do you know what I mean? And they say, fuck that. Because they, they're saying where they're from is, is chilled and relaxed type of, it's more relaxed. They don't really get stopped. They don't really get disrupted. So that's why they feel comfortable carrying these machetes down the pants and so on. Now, it's not for me to say, oh, these kids are carrying machetes. I, I don't tell the police. It's not my business. I'm not here to police the streets. I'm not here to give the police information. It's none of my business. I just want to try and help kids stay on the straight and narrow. Do you know what I mean? And, and help guide them on the right path. Or at the same time, stop and search definitely does work. There's no doubt about that. Well, Sicarius, it's been an incredible, I think we've been talking for about an hour and 20 minutes and a, a real fascinating insight. I, I feel we could probably speak even longer and we may revisit this um, in the coming weeks and months to get together and talk more about this. But for the time being, can I thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast? You know, I'm not going to understate the bravery in sharing one story, particularly yours. Um, which uh, I'm incredibly honoured to have listened to in so much detail. Uh, and equally, I think your, we call them words of wisdom in terms of, you know, the impact that policing techniques have, how people perceive the police in terms of stop and search, sort of your thoughts and feelings around your life. And when you saw that final moment of not wanting to be in this world of crime anymore and turning it around and really trying to support young people and trying to keep them on the straight and narrow one is an incredibly honourable one. So thank you for everything you're trying to do. And I, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show this evening. Yeah, thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Public Safety Foundation. The Public Safety Foundation and its supporters are on a mission to make the UK the safest place to live, work and raise a family. This crime-fighting mission is one that many of Protect and Serve's guests have contributed to. 
Find out more and join those already supporting the Foundation's mission by visiting publicsafetyfoundation.uk. Protect and Serve is an independent podcast hosted, produced and edited by Oliver Lawrence.